up, you guys? Welcome to Start Mindsets, episode 27. Today, we are talking to Whitney Sales. Whitney is currently the partner at Accelerprise, an early stage SaaS-based um, accelerator in San Francisco with offices in New York, and now I'm told Toronto. But yeah, Whitney, happy to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? It's, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to it. For sure. If you don't mind, I think a great talking point would be to start off with uh, what is Accelerprise in your um, explanation and like, kind of like, how do you guys uh, operate and just a little bit of detail in there? Yeah. So, um, Excel Prize is a B2B SaaS, ex- uh, ex- accelerator and seed fund. Um, as you mentioned, we have offices in San Francisco, New York, and, uh, Toronto. Uh, and then we also have a virtual program, uh, for people who are outside of those primary locations. Um, we started out, um, I used to run San Francisco's headquarter location. It was started by, um, my partner, uh, Mike Cardamon, uh, who was, you know, early box, I want to say he was like 2025, 20, um, employee 2025 20, at box. Uh, he and I met when he was running actually his first cohort. Um, and I joined in as the second partner at Excel prize. Um, at the time I was like the 37th female GP oh, wow. <laughs> um, and out there, which is sad, but true. Um, there's a lot more venture funds these days and a lot more women in the space, which is awesome. Um, we still need to increase the, the venture funding to women, but, um, as a fund, uh, we primarily focus on, uh, the thesis behind what we do actually is that there is, there is a playbook for SAS, um, just, you know, kind of three core playbooks, um, that I see, uh, for SAS businesses, um, that, and it's a repeatable process. And so, um, we specifically focus on accelerating companies, um, and helping teach them those, uh, that playbook and those best practices, um, and then help them fundraise. So pretty straightforward. Um, and, uh, we, you know, we're recently in the process, uh, of launching our seed fund. Um, it'll probably be announced by the time this podcast comes out. So that's what Oh, so, sweet. Yeah. That's really exciting. Uh, for, I guess one, something I was curious about, um, I do have, I do know Bitesize, which is one of your portfolio companies, right? Like I made an investment in Bitesize, which would be venture partners people. And yeah, you guys do a lot of amazing stuff across SaaS. And I think, um, yeah, there's so many accelerators out there, but what do you, I think in your kind of words, like separates Excel Prize from the rest of the, I guess, accelerators. And maybe if you could talk about that. Yeah. So, um, First of all, all of the partners in the fund are operators. Um, so we have built and scaled startups, in my case, many, many of them. Um, but most of us have started, have, uh, started or scaled multiple um, SaaS companies from the ground up. Um, and so we've, we've been in the shoes of the founders. Um, second, and, and when I say we scaled them from the ground up, we've, we've been very early at companies. Um, and so we've seen it and done it ourselves and know it very well. Um, most people say they, they've worked early stage companies. They usually join post series a, um, you know, I've been employee six at companies, employee 20 at companies, employee 11 at companies. Um, and I've built out a number of sales teams and I've advised, advised startups for, gotcha. Um, for over eight years. And so there's, we have, you know, we have a lot of experience in building and starting B2B SaaS companies as well. Um, so there's a focus on SaaS um, and, you know, many, many experience um, or a lot of experience specifically in that. Um, so those are the two major things I would say. Um, 
some other things are we're a pretty diverse um, fund. So uh, 30% of our companies are founded um, by, f- by female founders. So, um, and just looking at the overall venture market, it's like 2.3% of all venture capital goes to um, female founders. Um, over 70% of our um, founders are non-white male, which again, pretty astounding number compared to the market. <laughs> so, um, you know, and especially if you look at, at, at SaaS, um, who actually starts SaaS companies? Um, they're they're in in reference. They're they're even greater. So um, you know th- those are a couple things I would say. Uh, you know it has to do with culture. Um, you know we're not looking at the traditional um, you know traditional founders. We look for an X factor in founders. Um, it's also why we've had such high success and follow on funding and things like that for our founders. They're they're very scrappy. Um, and think outside the box. Um, so I would say those are the primary ones are, you know, built and, and developed by operators who've been in your shoes, B2B SaaS focused, um, incredibly diverse. It doesn't necessarily look at the traditional um, founder profile. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, I guess Whitney, uh, a question for me is, uh, when, you, when you, know, you, you started, I guess, uh, or helped start a seller price, um, why make it an accelerator versus, let's say, do a traditional seed fund or even a Series A fund? What was the thesis that you guys were looking at and you wanted to focus on the early stage, the earliest of stage, actually, versus the later, later stages? Yeah, so um, Accelerate, so it started by my partner, Mike. I joined... Um, I started advise like be a mentor and advising around mm-hmm. our second cohort, um, but I joined when we when we raised our second fund. So um, I didn't found Accelerate. I want to make sure Mike gets the full credit there. Um, the The thesis behind it was the that SaaS playbook. So um, back in back when it was started, um, one. YC was the, you know, major accelerator and tech stars out there. They were generalist funds. They weren't necessarily focused that there were some vertical funds that are starting to come out, but they weren't focused on SaaS. Um, they also haven't traditionally been great. Um, tech, tech stars has been better, but um, they haven't traditionally been great with diverse founders, especially female founders. Um, and so there was an opportunity there. There was also, so the SaaS component was one um, on that SaaS playbook. The second thing was, um, you know, just a, there was a large opportunity in the market. We, we had a thesis behind the fact that SaaS was going to be growing, um, which has played out very well, <laughs> looking at the market and what's happening yeah. in, the, in the financial market. It's played out very well. Um, but we saw this, this coming. Um, and then the other thing had to do with this playbook. So if you remember back in the day, um, traditional VC advice was to hire a VP of sales um, and have the, or build it and they will come. Yeah. Uh, There's product led growth is a big trend that's starting to come out in the market. And so, um, you know, the build in, they will come is starting to come. You still need to sell and there needs still needs to be a go to market component of that, that where there's a human interaction when it's B2B. Um, but product led growth is, is uh, a major trend, which is great. Um, but people were trying to jumpstart that. Um, and, uh, for enterprise, which though the price point for fully, um, for fully digital sales is uh, increasing, uh, specifically because of COVID, um, and you know, the forced adoption around that, um, 
uh, back in the day, people would say, hire a VP of sales. If you're a first time founder and you haven't done the sales yourself, you come from a technical product background and you hire a VP of sales when you have no idea what skill set you need from your VP of sales, um, you're going to run, you could potentially run into some major, major problems. Um, and in reality, most businesses scale to usually around their first million with the founding team, at least quarter million um, with the founding team. So, mm. um, that playbook didn't exist as much as it does today. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there, but there, there are, there are, there is this playbook and there are best practices around that. Um, and we kept seeing it happen over and over again, um, around this founder led growth and getting bad advice, um, and advice that wasn't SaaS B2B focused. Um, and so we wanted to go in and kind of solve this, solve that gap or fill that gap. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, I guess companies sort of just start with maybe make an MVP first, right? And then like after that, it's like, does it magically, you know, get adopted or like, you know, but in, when it's an early stage company, it's like, I guess like you would have to do a lot of work or like, yeah, a lot of effort goes into, you know, meeting the right people to sell to and, and you know, a lot of trial and error. But I wanted to ask you, since you brought up like a lot of startups were created by like what I'm trying to say is like technical people, right? Yeah. Engineers. And uh, maybe they've never, you know, been involved with business development or sales before. Do you see, I guess, within your portfolio and just people, you know, in, um, throughout your time as uh, index hub prizer and startups in general, do you see there needs to be like a major switch that they make and like that they have to learn sales on the job, well, off the job? Yeah. What do you think? I can tell you engineers actually, I was actually just talking to a, a um, a senior sales leader at the armory um, and or armory. Uh, and it was pretty funny. We were talking about it. He was an engineer um, by background. And if you look at, you know, Mark Roberge from HubSpot, you know, badass in the sales space, um, you know, he was an engineer by training. Engineers actually make phenomenal salespeople because they're very processes and systems oriented. And to optimize something, you have to have a process behind it in order to um, change the pieces of it. The big challenge is people um, see sales as an art and there is an art to it to a certain extent. Um, there's an art of listening to your customer in the same way you put on your product hat, you need to put on your, your sales hat, right? Um, there was a top a, um, with the CEO of uh, Databricks and um, the A16Z team um, at, that just came out. And they, the CEO of Databricks was talking about interviewing a VP of sales and they were talking about what do you think of you know X model. Um, and the guy's like, if it goes up, great. Um, and it was he's an engineer by background and he's like, okay, what if it goes down? He's like, not so great. <laughs> and it was just like, it was such a salesperson's answer. He's like, what do you think about it? And he found this way to, to like turn the question around um, on them. And there's this mentality from a sales perspective where um, you need to get the customer to tell you the answer. Um, and that has to do with asking the right questions. Um, one of the founding teams I work with recently called it leading the witness. But that's essentially what you're doing is you're, you're framing the problem in the customer's mind and how you present the problem through your founding story. And then asking the right questions to get the customer to think about the problem in the way they need to be thinking about it to challenge their mindset around it before you introduce the solution. And that that is a little bit of an art. But once you understand that and you can kind of tweak it and go, once you kind of create your script, yeah. um, it's not any different than the architecture around, you know, the figuring out your go-to-market is not any different than figuring out the architecture around your, your code base and your product. 
Um, certain things had different levers and there's certain things that drive certain problems. And so if you understand the framework behind it, you can identify where those problems sit and then diagnose them. Uh, but you need to, the biggest challenge I find when I'm coming into founders is they don't see it like a framework. They don't put it together as a process and really like work it through. I'd love to like get your sense on like, how does product market fit come into play once, you know, like maybe a startup has like five customers, like how do you think, um, oh, every startup's always working on product market fit. Okay. Like when, when is product market fit ever defined? Because in reality, you start on a core segment, you start on a beachhead market, then you have to figure out your larger market you're going after. You have to figure out how the product fits within that market. Maybe you're scaling up market, maybe you're scaling across market. So, I mean, in reality, like there's this, you know, this um, golden magical land of product market fit. Like, yeah, you need to be able to sell your product and it needs to be a repeatable product that you sell. Um, and the sales process needs to be repeatable and you're not, you can't be developing a different product for every single customer. It needs to be a scalable product that customers want to buy. Um, but in reality, like the definition of product market fit is basically in your ability to sell it to a VC around having product market fit. Like it's, it's this like wonderful land of bullshit um, that so many people talk about. But in reality, it's, do you have a repeatable sales process? How much of you do you risk around that? And are they buying the same product? Um, or are you, you know, changing it every single time with every customer? And when you stop having to change it every single time for every customer, you probably are getting close to product market fit. And when, you know, as you expand into, you know, and you can sell it repeatedly and there's the same process over and over again, like you've got a repeatable sales process, you have a, a scalable product, and then it's about figuring out like, how do you expand your market? And maybe you have to tweak the product a little bit around that. Right. Um, but sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess uh, Whitney, you know, uh, one thing that I was, you know, super grateful to meet you because you, you were one of the first people that said like, you know what? sales is 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 something that i am very good at right and i was like oh wow that's really interesting because most people are scared of it most people like think that it's a, a dirty word tell us more about like uh you know how a founder um or just generally people uh, you know make sure that they're not scared about selling right because that's something i think it's a mental block for most people especially founders yeah so um there are definitely things I can improve on on selling. So I'll just say that um, I, I love selling. So, um, you know, that's part of it for me. Um, and there's definitely areas of selling that I'm not particularly good at. Uh, you know, I'm not super technical. So, you know, developer tools, I'm not as great at, you know, selling to hospitals. I'm not particularly great at those are two different sales processes. Um, if you're selling to fully technical people, but um Otherwise it's, you know, there's a lot of things about it that are pretty similar. And then it's just figuring out the language um, of that industry and those buyers. Um, but coming back to why not to be afraid of sale, selling, um, you are selling people all the time. Like when mm. you're trying to convince someone of something, you're selling them. Um, you're, you know, exchanging credibility for an idea. Um, you're exchanging time, you know, like, Sales in reality is just an exchange of, you know, value for money, like whatever concept of value is in your customer's head, like, and equating that for dollars. That's the only major difference. And I break sales down into two things. It's problem solving and project management. Those two things are actually pretty easy to do in people's minds. Um, 
when you frame it that way. Uh, but most people think of this uh, concept of a used car salesman or, um, you know, like the boiler room of salespeople. And yeah, yeah. it's a different person. It, it is a different personality. Like there's, if you're an engineer and you bring in your salespeople, there are very different cultures between engineering teams and sales teams. They are. Salespeople are loud. Yeah. Uh, they're very competitive. Um, they're very like rewards based. Um, they're a little bit more short term than long term <laughs> um, mentality. Like uh, they have no shame, and I especially have no shame about asking for things that I want. Um, mm -hmm. Very direct. Um, you know, like I'm going to push my agenda in most meetings. I'm pretty loud. You know, those, those kind of things. But in reality, um, it's just a culture difference that doesn't mean you're not going to be good at it. And it doesn't mean everyone has one of the things I teach founders a lot is every person has their own style of selling. Like what you, your style is not necessarily going to be the other person's style. And so part of being a good manager is learning what that person's style is and helping them kind of like adapt it for them. And so that's why I like processes and mental models around selling as opposed to, scripts and things like that because the way I say something is not going to resonate with someone is the way you say something um, and how you convince someone of something is very different from how I convince someone of something um, and so you kind of have to help people develop their own style of selling yeah uh, I think you know kind of like sales is like I mean under underneath the umbrella of sales there's like the cold calling one and then there's like warm leads and like it's kind of like I mean, there's there's definitely a different mindset, right? When you're cold calling, and do you see that most early stage startups are doing cold calling? Since, I mean, that you could try to just experiment. I can tell you, um, cold calling does work, depending sure. on the industry, because it depends on their channel, like their channel, like how they learn about new products and whether they answer their phone, right? Uh -huh. um, but it does actually work. And I can tell you it was taught in the entrepreneurial sales class at Harvard this past, um, this past fall. Um, cause I was a sales coach for it. Um, it's Mark Roberge, uh, class that he teaches at Harvard, um, and the MBA program. So I can tell you it's actually still taught. <laughs> um, and I like, yeah, it's kind of a turnoff, but in reality, it's just picking up the phone and like talking to someone. People tie a lot of emotions around particular behavior, but it's just a mental blocker and an emotional blocker. And if you can get past it, you can get past it. Like, um, you have no problem reaching out to people to do customer discovery interviews and like cold, cold reaching out to people and asking for introductions. So what's the difference in asking them for like a qualifying conversation or like a discovery conversation to learn about how they're doing things? It's not, it's not any different. Yeah. Um, so I like, I don't know. And the most successful, like you kind of just, as if you're a founder, you can't have shame because That's the products, oh, this is one thing I tell people all the time. Mm -hmm. Your product is never going to be good enough. The customer is always going to want more. They are always going to want to pay less. Like right. it's just the way it is. And it's your job to hold the value of your products and like have no shame about it. Like be proud of what you put out, even if you think it can be better because it can always be better. You're gonna always think it can be better. Your salespeople are always gonna think it's, it can be better. Your engineers are always gonna think it's gonna be better. And your customers always gonna want it to be better. Like you kind of just have to get past it and get over it. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Do you think that, I mean, I think, do you think that emotions get in the way? I mean, like for example, I'm sure a lot of sales, they don't happen, right? Like and there's like 
maybe you'll do a hundred conversations and only 20 will sell, right? Is that, is that kind of common? And like, do you, do, you know, maybe the founder, like the SDR, or like anyone on the sales team, does that discourage them? Or like, what do you think there? And like, does... Um, one of my first managers I had, I used to sell into the real estate industry. It was my first job out of college. And let me tell you, real estate brokers are painful to sell to. <laughs> they are aggressive, especially when you have the East coast as your territory, they talk fast, they want you to pitch and they're rude. Um, and I used to get them hanging up on me all the time. I used to get them to tell me like expletives all the time. Like tell me to go fuck off. Like they were rude. Um, <laughs> and one of my first bosses, um, who was also a New Yorker. Um, <laughs> really bad, but he told me, he's like, if you have someone rude, just hang up the phone and say what you want to say, what you wish you said to them. And it, you know, you'd hear people swearing when they got off the phone, including myself. Um, and he's like, just do it, let it, let it out and be done with it. Um, don't take it personally. It has nothing to do with you. Like in reality, if someone's rude, it has nothing to do with you. Like, it, like sure. even when people get mad at you and a lot of like, a lot of times it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with like how their day went. Um, you know, if they're hungry, if they haven't had a bio break, you know, like if, if they've been on five hours of zoom calls and don't want to talk to anyone, like it, it likely has nothing to do with you. So you taking it personally, personally is giving, it's like taking more power than you need to make yourself feel bad. Yeah. Like it's just, it's not a smart thing to do. Um, and it's just a general motto for life. Like roll with it, you know, like, let it go and move on. Um, and I don't have to do that anymore. If someone's rude to me, it's just kind of like, whatever. Um, they had a bad day empathy for them. Okay. I'm going to move on. Um, and in reality, anytime rejection is information, that's all it is. It's just information. Um, like maybe you took the wrong approach. Uh, maybe not the right person at the company to talk to. Um, like that's all it is. No is just information. Rejection, root re rejection is just information. That's all it is. So don't take it personally. Mm, I love that, uh, uh, Whitney. I think a lot of us think of rejection and take it extremely personally, right? Uh, especially it's the product that you're building and you think that they're kind of, you know, pissing on your, you know, your, your baby, right? Yeah. So always, people are always worried about. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk yeah. about like you and, you know, um, and really this section, you know, we'd like to understand, you know, you know, how did you, uh, you know, how did you get into an entrepreneurial mindset? I mean, any point, I guess, in your life that you realize that you really like building companies, you know, selling new products, because this is a path where most people don't really discover, right? So yeah. maybe if you can tell us more about like a certain point in your life where you kind of maybe discover this for yourself. Yeah. So, um, I was the little kid who sold Girl Scout cookies and would sell, sell cookies, like homemade cookies and lemonade stand and friendship bracelets and, um, flowers I cut from my neighbor's garden and, and turned into potpourri. Like I, I would figure out ways as a kid to make money. Um, and you know, I worked three jobs through, um, through high school, graduated early, uh, a semester early and took college courses from my junior year on graduated from college in, um, in four years, but, uh, I had finished a year of school before I, I actually, um, went to college. I just didn't want to finish college too early. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> college years are fun. Um, 
but how like so I had I guess I had a little bit of it for for a while um I think the sales mindset I had had to do with the fact um you know I'm dyslexic um and so when I was younger I had um, I was bullied a bit. I had, a, I had used to have this big gap in between my front teeth. So I'd actually whistle when I spoke through my front teeth. Like I was a cute little kid, but like not, not so cute. Um, when you know, you can't read and, and you whistle when you speak. Um, <laughs> so I was teased pretty badly and I had to go to special, like special ed classes. Um, I was, I was top like 2% in math and like bottom 20 in English. Um, oh. it, was, it was really bad. Um, and so I, I had to learn to ask for help a lot. Um, and I was really lucky I had, you know, um, special, like the woman who taught our, you know, special ed program. Um, I'm not sure the politically correct term for it now, but um, like who taught that program in our school, her daughter was dyslexic. And so she actually specialized in dyslexia. And so um, interesting fact, 30% of entrepreneurs are actually dyslexic. And I think it has to do with the fact that, um, you just learn that the way things work doesn't work for you. Like you have to do things your own way. Um, and so I think it has a little bit to do with those two things. So like needing to ask for help constantly because I just couldn't do a lot of things. Um, and I was challenged by like everyday activities. Um, learning that systems didn't work for me and learning how to learn, um, like learn my own way, which was great. Cause once I learned my own way, I like accelerated. Um, and it didn't take me nearly as much work as a lot of people in college to, to you know, get the information I needed. Um, and I was shameless about asking for help. So those kind of things happened. And then when I um, worked at a law firm in college, their, their business grew significantly while I was there. And I didn't think I was going to go into sales. It's not like something you aspire to be. I'd work, I had planned on being a lawyer. Um, oh, sorry, Dan, you're on. Your last name, is it sales or is that like a nickname? Yeah, it's, it's, it's sales Concanon actually. I dropped Concanon when I was like eight because dyslexia. Um, everyone knew how to spell sales. No one knew how to spell Concanon and writing out a 15 letter last name is torture for a dyslexic child who writes like backwards and upside down and all that kind of stuff. So um, I just, you know, I dropped it because it was easier for me. My, dis my little kid brain just figured I'd, I'd take the last name that everyone knew how to spell. Um, so my driver's license does say sales can canon, but I've gone by Whitney sales for okay. you know, long, long time. Um, and so, uh, anyway, I worked for a law firm, uh, the business grew significantly. I, like I decided I didn't want to go into law and the lawyer I worked for, I asked him what I should do. And he's like, you should try sales. It pays <laughs> really well. I think you'd be really good at it. Our business has grown having you like you're a people person. Give it a shot. Um, and so out of college, I went and interviewed for a bunch of startups and, um, I like got an offer at every job I interviewed for and, uh, picked a startup and like fell in love with it. Um, and I launched my first product there. For, for sure. How, how long did it take you to figure out that you were good at sales or that you liked it? Um, I hit 300% of quota within my first month and oh. my first, um, and it was, it was a ramp, you know, <laughs> ramp quota, but I basically hit the quota that everyone else had full. Um, in my first month over that quota, um, and continued to hit over quota for like 18 months. Um, and so it's just, I was pretty good at it. Yeah. Does that just come from like being tenacious, just having that I can attitude and just believing that the people that you're talking to should be your customer at the end of the day? Is that really what it boils down to? Um, I think part of it had to do with, I had a pretty big chip on my shoulder in my twenties. Oh. Um, so I like, uh, 
I was not going to lose and I was never going to let anyone down. Um, I'm also incredibly creative. And so I could come up with new, which, you know, serves me very well in the, um, in my current, current role, but <laughs> I'm working with startups, but, um, on go to market, but I, I was incredibly creative. So I could come up with different ways to position things and different ways to do things, but I'm also analytical and process oriented. So I'd figure out ways to rework systems or make it better. Um, and then I was ambitious. So, you know, when they offered education credits, I took education credits. I took a negotiation course. I made friends with my professor. He came in and taught at all the startups that I worked at after that. Okay. Um, you know, like I, I was, yes, it was tenacious. I also had a chip on my shoulder and I wasn't going to lose. Um, you know, I, that's been removed by a prior boss because um, it was not going to work in a lot of cultures, but uh, it was, uh, you know, I was, I was not going to lose. I was going to be, you know, I was going to be the best. Yeah. Do you think that DNA of like, um, what's it called? Uh, type A personality maybe, or like just, uh, I mean, maybe. I'm definitely not type A actually. I would. Uh, I'm no. I, I don't even know what I am anymore. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am a creative at heart. Um, so I, I wouldn't like what makes someone good at sales is a little like one. You have to be coachable. Two, you have to like be able to pick up on patterns and learn from people very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have good communication skills, great communication skills, um, strong writing skills. Like I was a sociology major. I called it the major of bullshit because like your job was to basically like identify some social pattern and like come up with like how it was a pattern. It was all theoretical. I will still love sociology. There's a lot of really great things about social. Um, But like papers I had to write were all theoretical and it was all like, yes. And so it trained me really well for selling um, in written communication Um, and like arguing a point in written communication. So I don't know. Um, I wouldn't say it's like type A, but I would say um, being tenacious, like not like being able to move past like social barriers and like people who have had to overcome some type of social adversity in general, because, you know, you you can't really have a lot of shame in sales and you have to have kind of a personality, um, you know, to, to talk to people and, you know, get to know people and like break down the social, um, social barriers. So, you know, like the popular kid not isn't necessarily always going to be the best salesperson sometimes. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. And then a competitive mindset. I was competitive when I was younger. I'm, I would say I'm less so now. I kind of set my own bar now. But um, when I was younger, like I judge myself by other people's bars. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying, do you think it's a must that um, to be a salesperson, you need to be like high energy and like in every conversation bring a lot of like, you know, that it like that <laughs> that thing that, yeah, so it's it's not necessarily that you need to be high energy, but um, like I'm not an extrovert. I'm an, actually an introvert. I love people, but I'm I'm mm-hmm. more of an ambivert. Let's let's say that. Um, probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can definitely get energized by people, but it's usually like specific types of people. Um, so what I was going to say is that uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it's high energy, but you need to have a high EQ and a high level of empathy. And, uh, if someone is low energy, when you're interacting with them, um, you need to be able to match that rapport and then bring them up. Sure. So you do need to know how to like get your energy up and down, um, while mirroring the person to build, build that, uh, kind of that bridge, um, and that rapport with someone. So I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't say you have to be high energy, but you have to have a high EQ and a high level, you know, empathy um, to be able to build that bridge uh, from an emotional state and build a positive emotional state in someone else, because that is kind of what you're trying to do when you're selling. There's a feeling that comes along with selling someone as well as an intellectual logic that comes along with it. So you need to have the ability to kind of manage both of those. Right. Yeah. Uh, with the, um, uh, in, your, in your story, kind of after college, you said that you applied to a number of startups. There's a lot of listeners here that, you know, um, are looking for career transitions and trying to go from, let's say, college to maybe a startup or even from a large company to a startup. How do you make that mental transition? Just because it's a very hard one, especially that corporate, large corporate, and then I want to do a startup, right? Yeah. So I knew I always wanted to work for a startup. I never wanted to work for a big company. I, I am not a cog in a wheel. I like to learn and I move very fast. Um, and as soon as things come become repetitive, I get bored. So, um, and I move on. So, uh, I knew that about myself from the beginning. So I knew I wanted to work for a startup. If you're someone who's at a corporate who wants to work for a startup, the first thing I say is, start working with founders. Like it's pretty easy to plug into the founder ecosystem. They all need help. They all need advice. They all want to pick, pick your brain. So the first thing you should do is just get to know founders out there and like get to know the different types of founders that exist. So you can figure out the type of startup you want to go into, like plug into the startup ecosystem and understand it. Um, before making the, the leap, like don't just make a leap. Um, because you're probably going to get in over your head because it's trial by fire versus nice cushy paycheck. Um, there's a big transition in that. Um, and you have to do everything yourself versus everything being available to you, um, depending on the size of corporate, cause you get into big enough corporates and nothing's done for you. Um, it's like they scale themselves out of, of helping people. But, uh, anyway, making that transition, it, it depends on whether you're a tactical executor or a strategic executor. Um, so meaning leadership or, you know, um, someone on the, the tactical team, like if you want to make a transition from like an enterprise org to a sales org, um, to a startup sales org, um, the things I would look for, if you're a tactical executor is looking at, um, companies that have a similar model to the organization, um, that you are at. So if you're an enterprise sell, you know, enterprise salesperson, look for an enterprise, um, sale. If you're, you know, look at the types of buyers they are. So is there overlap in the existing customer base and the type of, um, type of customer you used to sell into so you can bring some knowledge in there because ideally the startup is also hiring for that knowledge. Um, now if you're a leader who's transitioning, I would definitely recommend advising the company for at least three months. Um, do no equity, like don't ask for that because, <laughs> more than likely they're not, they're, they're going to want a cliff and you're not going to want to buy the equity if it doesn't work out after three months anyway. So, um, like say, Hey, I'm interested in like your organization and learning more about you. Um, you know, I would love to work with you for a few months, like an advisor capacity and see if it's something you want to join. Like a lot of, um, a lot of founders will be interviewing for a specific role. If you give them the option to try it out, um, so you guys can find a mutual fit. You're going to, both of you are going to be in a much better position because you know what you're getting yourself into by the time you sign up for full time. And if you're in a leadership position, you ha usually have enough money to be able to do something for a few months. Um, and the startup can pay you something, um, for those three months. If you're, if you're coming on an advisory capacity, 
um, to figure out if it's going to work before you hire someone. Gotcha. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, just one, one or two more things here. I just want to ask, like, do you have a cool story from maybe one of the portfolio companies and how they approach sales and like, I mean, maybe something unexpected or like, I don't know, they uh, did something really unique that I don't know, it's worth worth hearing or like something you share from there. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 funny you ask about that. I have so many of them, but I like it's really hard for me to pull the individual story unless I talk to that person that day. Um, what are some things that have been done? Um, I mean, one of my companies just has built a massive marketplace of customers that they can just pull from um, by being a top Google search result, um, around really small nuanced things for demand gen. Um, another company, um, I work with did a hack on Twitter where not, they didn't hack Twitter. They did a, um, a, uh, an ad on Twitter that um, we actually had a 50% convert, convert rate, conversion rate from ad to um, qualifying meeting. And then that was like another, like, I think 30% of those would convert. So it was actually pretty, um, pretty high conversion rate because they were super targeted on their Twitter ads. Um, Twitter changed its algorithm and then they moved over to Quora. Quora does not have a cap on outbidding people. And if you have a hard, high contract value, um, you can do that. Like, you can, you know, they, they say it's against the terms, but you know, until they build it in there, it's not really against the terms for startups. Okay. Uh, you can these days. Um, so that was another one. You can just always outbid. Um, what are some other things like there? I've heard of some other ones. Like there uh, companies have gone after like YouTubers, like people who follow people on YouTube for, this is more of a B2C type company. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm like trying to think through these. It's like literally if I didn't hear it in the past week, I have the worst long-term memory. <laughs> um, yeah, I, those are some I can think of off the top of my head. But I mean, it's changing a lot um, these days. It is really changing, like especially around the product like growth component. Yeah. Uh, and how people acquire customers. Just piggybacking off of that question, um, how has like the lockdown and quarantine in place kind of, affected sales like maybe does sales take a hit because you know not everyone's in the office and like there's not a vibe because people work from home or like i don't know like is it you have to approach these potential customers in a unique way since um i would say like okay so for enterprise deals it's um it's forced people to go online and like not being able to meet people at conferences is pretty hard uh -huh. in certain markets because they're the majority of like what they acquire or the majority of their demand generation is done at conferences so they've had to figure things out but it's also forced a lot of people who never used to have a big online presence online which is pretty cool um so price points have gone up uh like or not price points but uh the price point in which people buy fully virtual has gone way up which is great um I think that's awesome. Um, uh, like it's, it's forced a lot of people online, so it's changed their online behavior. Traditional marketing channels have changed quite a bit. So like email marketing is way up. So you have to find other ways to get in touch with your buyer. Um, so Slack channels are great. Um, you know, Twitter's like people's activity on Twitter has gone way up. They have their, you know, you can DM people there. Um, 
you know, there's, there's a lot of, lot of different, like the channel expansion. Everyone has podcasts these days. No offense guys. Um, <laughs> but like everyone's doing a podcast, there's clubhouse that's changed. Like people are doing a lot of self-promotion on clubhouse. So, um, I would say the channel development has changed quite a bit. Like how people go to market has changed quite a bit. And then, um, the sales process overall, I don't think has changed that much. I mean, you can't like meet people face to face. So building trust takes a little bit longer, but um, you can do that through proof of concept, which is this whole thing around leading pro- from a product led growth capacity, which is driving a lot of sales that way. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Whitney, um, maybe we could kind of wrap up this uh, podcast with our, our three questions. But yeah. the first question is you know, if you had to summarize your own personal startup mindset um, in one to two sentences, what would that be? Um, don't be afraid just try it like just go for it like especially the earlier the better um there are so many things when I was younger I had this like mentality of like putting in my dues you don't need to put in your dues just go for it like, I, 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 I love that you have a lot less till you lose the younger you are I love that yeah because it's it's always people always think that yeah how do I deserve it right what you know how do I pay my dues so that's that's an amazing uh advice um, second question for me before I turn it over to Dan for the final questions. Um, you know, if you had to meet, I guess, Whitney, a 20 year old Whitney right now, yeah. uh, what would you advise to her, um, for her to discover, you know, her very own startup mindset and, you know, to make sure that they follow or maybe not follow the path that you're in right now? I mean, for me, it's I, I have like, like I said, I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder when I was younger. So um, mm-hmm. I, w- uh, I would say that you have nothing to prove. Um, there was a lot of trying to prove I was smart enough, prove my own value. I think part of it had to do with my dyslexic mindset, like being dyslexic and teased when I was younger. Um, even though I did really well in college and like graduated with honors and all that stuff. But um, there was a lot of like needing to prove myself in life. Um, that I like, I've thrown that completely out the window. I have nothing to prove anymore. It's like, you know, I just enjoy life, enjoy my friends, enjoy the people I work with. So um, just like, it, like you have nothing to prove and enjoy, like find the things you enjoy. I guess would probably be the advice I give. That's super amazing advice. Yeah. I think the final thing I tend to ask here is how can uh, people find you or, you know, follow your work and I, I see you're at the sales method on, on Twitter. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's at the sales method. I'm Whitney at the sales method. Um, I'm Whitney at excelaprise.bc. So it's pretty easy to get in touch with me. You can add me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty open. Just like references podcast. You heard me on the podcast and want to connect. <laughs> um, I am not a person who's like super restrictive. I am, I am restrictive with my time. Um, it was great to see you again, Earl. Um, but uh, I'm restrictive with my time, but I'm, I'm not super restrictive about, you know, people reaching out and trying to connect or, you know, like if they have a question, um, I probably have a deck or a piece of content on it. I've developed, it may not be published, but I probably have something in my Google drive or my notion page. So, um, I probably have something I can, I can recommend. Um, and I'm, I'm very big on making things accessible. If you couldn't tell, it's like, get rid of the mental bullshit and like, just do it and figure it out. Um, and I, I, I'm happy to share. I'm very, very open. For sure. Well, you guys heard it here first. Sales method with winning sales. <laughs> totally the 
I guess like maybe you might be like up there with like the best sales kind of sort of that I've like, kind of spoken to. I kind of learned a lot here. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad it's been helpful.